0: want to put an exclamation point on a couple things bill uh mentioned breeze is is just the email or the text you'll get from lion and lamb usually on short notice issues if there was a heavy snow or there was an ice storm and we were canceling services that's the way you would hear about that breeze so you don't get a lot of texts or emails they're short term and they're very few but it's important especially uh, in front of events or Sunday services. So that's the primary use we make of that So the forms for that are at the welcome desk there uh, on the other side of the doors in the lobby area So if you're not signed up for breeze I would highly encourage you to be the other one is a growing kids God's way. Kathy and I went through this ourselves a long time ago probably oh, Look. <laughs> 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 what do I do what do I, <laughs> what do I say? <laughs> um, we went through it we've taken groups through it i think the schwenson's went through one of the ones we did many years ago and guys i i cannot over emphasize uh, the value of being prepared to raise your kids uh, when you look at the qualifications for leadership in the church it's how you raised your family It's what kind of a leader you are at home is the qualification for leadership in the bigger family, which is the family of God in the local church. And parenting doesn't come natural to all of us, and, and we come in. It's a challenge. I've told you guys before, we would tell the girls when they were upset with us, this is the first time we've been parents, we're doing the best we can, and your problems, those are going to be your problems. Sorry about that. But, but we want the biblical information, we want the biblical affirmation, we want the encouragement that God gives us to parent well. First, because it honors Him, and second, because it blesses our children. And guys, the way of the world is not the way to raise your kids. And your concept of parenting, if it's not God's concept, it's not the way to do it either. You need to know what God calls you to as Christians to be godly parents for the benefit of your children and to honor the Lord as well. So can't emphasize that too much. If you haven't had that class, highly recommend it. It starts, I believe it's the third week of March and Sean will be at the table this morning, and I think you'll have the opportunity the next couple Sundays as well. So look at your schedules, and if there's any way you can do that, excuse me, I highly encourage you to. Bill also mentioned, uh, not Vladimir Putin by name, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Putin, because of that, of course, and and leading up to that, has been in the news for some time. He he has the might of the Russian military behind him as they go into Ukraine. Uh, He has wealth and power and fame to be sure, and I think he really wants to restore Russia to the the glory days of the Soviet Union, of yore or Russia as it was uh, many many years ago at its heyday, but with all that, uh, Vladimir Putin is a fool. Xi Jinping is the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. He's the ruler of China, is a nation of 1.4 billion people. You know, the US is somewhere around 320, 330, almost four times the size of the population of the United States. He has the wealth of the world's fastest ascending nation. He's expanding his influence as broadly and quickly as Alexander the Great did centuries ago. He appears to be unstoppable in his desire to make China the world's preeminent superpower. And with everything she has going for him, she is a fool. Richard Dawkins is the face of atheistic evolution. He's a man of towering intellect, a biologist, an evolutionist, an author with all his academic acumen, with all his philosophical and scientific background, Richard Dawkins is a fool. You can guess where this is going. Joe Rogan, perhaps closer to home. I hope I step on some toes here. (laughs) Joe Rogan has been a darling a little bit recently of conservatives because he has had physicians on his podcast that have basically spoken against the CDC and the National Institutes of Health for really, guys, without overstating at all, the malfeasance our national healthcare system has perpetrated against the United States, absolute malfeasance. And he's called out doctors who have pointed out the misinformation that has been communicated at a high level through the United States. So conservatives, he's been a darling for a while. He has the most listened-to podcast in the world. He has a $100 million contract signed in 2020 uh, for Spotify, having the exclusive rights to his podcast. He has well-famed popularity. And friends, no overstatement, Joe Rogan is a fool. And I wanted to make sure, so I listened to him online before I, I called his name out here this morning. Now, it's a cheap shot to simply call people names To be sure and you're wondering why I'm doing this which is fine so that means I have your attention so under what rationale can these highly successful people all be called fools because they are not because Mike says so what these four have in common along with many many others across the earth today is that they claim there is no God or they claim to be agnostics and essentially they live as practical atheists. God calls atheists, whether it's the philosophical variety or the practical, fools. God calls these people fools. I'm not throwing stones at anyone else. God's Word calls anyone that holds these beliefs fools. And unless the grace of God intervenes in the lives of these men and others just like them, the day will come when they shrink back in abject terror in the face of God's judgment. We're in a series called Like a Tree. It's a study through selected songs in the book of Psalms. And if you remember the opening two Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, we looked at those and really there was this categorical... defining difference between two groups on the planet the righteous and the wicked and you know you saw in psalm 1 the righteous they avoid the ways of the wicked and the path of sinners and the scoffers and they embrace god through his word And you got to psalm 2 and you see that the righteous embrace god's messiah as well and the wicked do none of those things they're living in opposition to god And that dichotomy or or the, the, um, the very sharp line in the sand between those two groups in the Scripture is repeated through all of the wisdom literature and through the Psalms as well. And that's going to be the background for the psalm that we're in this morning, Psalm 14. Many of the Psalms assume the division between the righteous and the wicked, the people of God and everyone else. In the Old Testament, God's covenant group, Israel and the rest of the world. And this morning, between the foolish and the wise. Between fools and the wise. That's the dichotomy we'll look at this morning. Psalm 14 is a song that assumes that the people who wickedly oppress the righteous act out of a kind of foolishness that is the product of their willful rejection of God. And that's important. Let me say that again. This song assumes that the people who wickedly oppress the righteous, David will bring this out in the song, act out of a kind of folly that is the product of their willful rejection of God. You know, if, if we're fools, we can get into trouble in all kinds of ways. But specifically, the folly that David's going to point out this morning leads to the oppression by the unrighteous of the righteous. That's the way their foolishness will be exemplified in Psalm 14. It's because the fools who have distanced themselves from God, the way that's being worked out is they're oppressing the righteous. That's what we'll see in Psalm 14. Steve Lawson calls this song, A dirge on depravity, a dirge on depravity. In fact, I think it's Alan Ross that says uh, this song and Psalm 53, if you keep reading through the Psalms, you'll know Psalm 53 is almost identical to Psalm 14. A little different language, a little different confusion, a little different emphasis. But Ross calls this one of the key passages on the sinful condition of all of mankind just that status that we all start with. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, once you open those? We're in Psalm 14. It's a Psalm of David, and he dedicated on the front end to the choir master a very short introduction. Uh, start there at verse 1. The fool says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They, the fool, the fools, they are corrupt. That's what fools are. Fools are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. That's what fools do. They're corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, no more than I was uh, trying to simply throw uh, stones at these guys by using the term or the name fool. Fool in this song isn't a childish form of name calling. In this song and in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, fool is a description of people who reject the knowledge of God, who live life on their own terms, come what may. And guys, we just say this, I'll cover this again, but in history, the atheism as it's described today is pretty much a recent thing, a recent invention. Because if you look through history, people have always worshipped something or someone. We're made to worship, you can't get away from it atheism as it's practiced today is a new form of folly of saying well no it's it's that a god doesn't simply exist at all there is no god versus there's one god or there's another god that's that's a relatively new thing so it's not that the fool claims atheism as a philosophy of life especially in the scriptural use it's more the thought that god is irrelevant god's irrelevant One commentator commentator describes this folly as practical atheism. So I know God exists, and we do know God exists, no matter what people say. We'll look at this scripture in a little bit. I know God exists, but I will live as if he doesn't. I will choose to live as if God doesn't exist. I'm not going to pay attention to him. A fool in Hebrew is naval or nabal, depending on how you translate it. It means stupid, wicked, vile, impious, unholy. One commentator uses simply sinner as a synonym for it. If you remember the story in 1 Samuel 25 of Abigail, a lovely woman who eventually becomes one of David's wives, she says of her husband, his name is Nabal, and Nabal is what he is. His name means folly, and it's because he's a fool. Here's a couple examples of the way this term is used in light of Psalm 14, Job 21, 14. The wicked says to God, depart from us. We don't desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? They're not saying there isn't a God. They're just saying we don't want anything to do with him. Psalm 10, verses 3 and 4 is similar The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Now understand, he curses God, he renounces God, so it means he acknowledges God is and he's there. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. He's not saying God doesn't exist. He's saying for me, I choose to act and live as if there is no God. It's a practical form of atheism. That's where people, most people who claim atheism or agnosticism are today. Now, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans 1, 18 through 23. This is a very well-known passage, especially for anyone that does apologetics or evangelism. It's a very well-known passage from Romans. And Paul is talking about the process by which men embolden themselves in folly, humanity, men and women. This is the process by which we end up at the place where the fools are that David's interacting with in this psalm. Now, guys, we're born, we'll we'll get to this a little bit in Romans 3, we're born with an issue, right, a division between us and God. But that division is heightened or broadened through this process of the suppression of the truth it leads to a greater degree of folly. You see this in Romans 1. Starting at verse 18, Paul says, By their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. You know, if truth is a spring, they're pushing it down. You know the children's little play thing, the jack-in-the-box? Well, jack is the truth. Well, I push it down and I close the lid. Because truth is, otherwise it's there. I've got to do something about it because I don't want it. So I'm suppressing truth. What can be known about God is plain to them. And that's not just true past tense. This is true today. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You guys know if you see a painting on the wall of a museum, a painting, you know there's a painter. If you pick up a book and it's got text and type and it develops a theme, you know that the book means there's an author. And Paul here says in Romans, the creation screams creator. That it's obvious that you can't get away with it. You can deny it, but it's there. Absolutely there. He says God has made it clear. So he says they are without excuse. Although they knew God. The knowledge of God is here. This is true for every every person on the earth. The knowledge of God is there. They knew God. They did not honor Him as God. They didn't give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So I may start foolish, but I can grow in my folly or my foolishness by darkening my own heart. Claiming to be wise they became fools. That's how we get there. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And here, just for a moment, if you think back on history, the Greeks and the Roman gods were... were human personas sort of written large they were capricious just like humanity but it was the image of man a a, a element of God's creation was being worshiped the figures of men and women but you go to other cultures and other times they would worship animals a Dagon for the Philistines was a fish god for instance but he's saying because they know from creation that there's a creator They worship, it's just that they've turned from the truth of the God who's separate from his creation, he's above his creation, and they've turned to things God made to worship. Now, this is interesting. The most uneducated and impoverished pagan in the most undeveloped country in the world who worships elements of creation, anything, is closer to the truth than the most educated and articulate of atheists and agnostics Because they recognize that the glory of creation speaks to the glory of a creator. Anyone that worships anything is closer to the truth than the atheists and the agnostics. That is folly taken to the nth degree. It's like covering... Have you ever seen a kid cover their eyes, they saw something they didn't like? I cover my eyes and I pretend it's not there. That's not rational it's not logical they have left rationality behind this isn't about mental ability it's about moral humility that's what David's talking about the folly in the bible is not am I smart it's not am I a phd it's not am I intellectually acute it's am I spiritually humble that's the issue it's humility Truth is spiritually appraised. There's some other verses you can look at later on your study sheet. So David's applying this term fool to the impious, unholy group that is oppressing the righteous within Israel. By the way, there's some ambiguity in the song... David's talking about the oppression of the foolish against the righteous, but he doesn't, there's no history behind this. We don't know who he's talking about. We don't know what incident it was. Was it a group of Jews that were oppressing other Jews? Was it Gentiles that were oppressing Israelites? It's not clear. The, the only thing that is clear is the fools are oppressing the righteous, the wicked foolish are oppressing the righteous. That term applies to today equally. All who embrace communism as a worldview biblically are fools. Communism, as you know, it says there is no God. It's atheistic in its origin and it says man is the measure of all things and man can create utopia on earth. Man can make this thing work. Guys, if there's anything communism has proven, it's that communism can't make it work. The the biggest murders, the biggest death toll in the history of the world is under communism, under Stalin, and under Mao in China. Between the two, a hundred million at least directly. The figures, are they vary wildly. Communism is responsible directly for more murders than any other institution on the earth. Every professing atheist and agnostic, biblically, God calls a fool. And friends, this is the thing too. This rests with you and me. This isn't just them. Talk about that in a second. You and I live as fools and practical atheists when we choose to pursue sin. We know better and we choose to pursue sin anyway. When we suppress the truth, when we turn away from God to turn to our own ways, when we refuse to embrace God's word as truth and God to be obeyed. When we choose, and we'll get into this in a verse, it says they turn to their own way. When Christians who have God's word and the spirit of God, when we say anyway, Lord, I know this is what you say, I know this is what you want, I know I'll grieve your spirit, I know I'll quench your spirit, but I'm going to do this thing anyway, we are acting like the fools, we are living like the fools in Psalm 14. Dynamically, it becomes the same thing. Uh, The rest of verse 1 there says that the fools are corrupt, they're corrupt, that means they're rotten. They're ruined from the inside out. They are morally, they're, they're internally corrupt. And they are abominable, repulsive, vile, detestable. This is God speaking. The fool is morally corrupt, and out of that ruined morality, the fool acts detestably, vilely. And you guys know, we at the end of the day, not only does the... Uh, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, but out of the abundance of the heart, that that is what informs, it's what motivates the things we do. You know, this is the acid test on what you believe. It's not what you tell me. It's not what you tell yourself. It's what you do. It's what you do reflects what you really believe. We could paraphrase verse 1 this way. The proud person who's wise in his own eyes, but who refuses to acknowledge and honor God, lives a life characterized by moral corruption and reprehensible treatment of others. In this group, there's not a single one who does what is right. Now, we can avoid folly. Thank God. We can avoid this lifestyle. We can avoid this, this interior rot, rust, if you will. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To fear, So, I know God made the heavens and the earth. I know God's distinct from creation. And, of course, God's revealed himself to us in his word as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. God is, and he's my creator, and I owe him something. I should be in awe of him. I should take my cues from him. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. This dichotomy again. Fools despise the thing they should embrace. Job 28.28, I was reading this morning, Job 28 is one of my favorite chapters in Job. It's a a wisdom chapter. He said, The fear of the Lord is wisdom. To turn from evil is understanding. You see, that's the opposite of what they're doing. It's the opposite of what they've given themselves to do. 2 Timothy 3.15 The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be intellectually astounding to read the Bible to hear God's word, to, to conclude, Lord, I'm a sinner. Jesus, save me. God's word gives us wisdom that leads to salvation. Paul was writing this about Timothy's upbringing, by the way. If your parents, are you leading your children to Christ? Are you telling them there's bad news and there's good news? Are you giving your kids the gospel? We always prayed for our, our girls from the time they were little, Lord, would you save them? Would you save them early? Would you help them grow up with the knowledge of you? And guess what we pray for our grandchildren? Lord, would you save them? Would you save them early? Would you help them grow up in the knowledge of you? That's the thing. The wisest thing any of us can do is repent of our sins, receive forgiveness and restoration of a relationship. Remember, life is relationship with God through Christ. And then meet with the Lord daily in his word where we find more of the wisdom God sets aside for us in Christ. Colossians 2 verse 3 says this, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ. So if I get Christ, I get wisdom. If I get Christ, I get knowledge. So when I say read your Bible or uh, your quiet time what are you reading we don't, we're not just reading words in a book we're not just reading text we're meeting with christ we're gaining more of christ and the more of christ we gain just in our relationship the wiser we become we want more of christ and more of his wisdom verses two and three at yahweh the lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, so who, so who have wisdom, who have the fear of the Lord, who seek after God. Oh, this is the conclusion. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Now, start here. Remember, we always want to take Scripture in its immediate context to know what, what is being said. David speaks of they in verse 3. They have all turned aside. As a group, he's not a part of. He's saying us and them. He's saying me and them, they. That's a different group David doesn't include himself in. He uses all-inclusive terms. There's none good. There's not even one. But he's differentiating the foolish who are oppressing the righteous from the righteous. So all of them, all of those ones who are doing these dastardly deeds against God's righteous, that's them. In wisdom literature... You see in verse 3, it says uh, they turn aside, they've turned aside. In Scripture, especially in Proverbs, the path of the righteous, one verse says, is like the sun, it grows brighter and brighter. But the path of the righteous, it's narrow and it's straight ahead. And so in Proverbs, if I turn aside, if I turn aside to the left or if I turn aside to the right, it means I've left the path of wisdom. You know, Jesus in the New Testament and the Gospel says, uh, narrow is the way that leads to salvation. Well, that's out of the Old Testament. The way of wisdom is a narrow, straight path. If I turn aside in either direction, I'm going my own way. It's folly. I've got to be careful of that. So he's talking about these folks as they've turned to their own ways. They've left the path of wisdom. David says, all those bent on the harm of God's people have embraced folly how many among their number seek god he asks how many of them have understanding adequate to do good he asks. the conclusion is not even one none of them that are doing these things have wisdom according to god's view of wisdom now that passage is better known not from psalms but from romans and if you've got romans 3 excuse me turn there now for just a second In the New Testament, you you know Romans is sort of Paul's masterpiece, and in Romans one, two, and up to the uh, half of chapter three, Paul is laying down the foundation of the gospel by giving the bad news. And the bad news in chapter one is the Gentiles are sinful and they're under the judgment of God. And the bad news in chapter two is the Jews are sinful and they're under the judgment of God, even though they have the law. And he concludes this, sort of as an attorney, he's making his case, he concludes the case in chapter 3 by quoting Psalm 14. So he says, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's at verse 9 and 10. And then he quotes Psalm 14, as it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they've become worthless. No one does God, not even one. That's Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. The judgment King David makes against the oppressors of the righteous is expanded in Romans 3 by Paul to say, we saw this in in Psalm 1, we all begin as fools. You know, one of the upsides of Psalm 1 you know, if you say, who's the righteous? Well, we came, to, we came to the same passage, and we said, no one starts righteous. This, this verse, these verses, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, used by Paul in Romans 3, were meant to indict all of us. None of us are okay when we start. So we said, wow, you know what? Psalm 1 talks about the righteous and the wicked, but guess what? Nobody started righteous, so what does that mean? God saves sinners, And here in Romans 3, because it's quoting the passage about fools, it also means, guess what? God saves fools. God saves fools like you and me. And God saves fools like the people you know that you look at their life and you say, why in the world are you living this way? Why don't you accept the gospel? Why don't you trust Christ? Why don't you embrace wisdom? And you look at their lives, it's foolish. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And guess what? There's hope because God saves fools. Because Paul goes from this passage to say... Jesus' blood is the propitiation for our sins. And that through faith in Christ, fools become wise. That those alienated from God become God's children. So this declaration, all have sinned, all are fools, is right before he gives us the solution. How how are fools saved? Through faith in Christ and his atoning work. It always leads to the gospel. We all begin as fools. 1 Corinthians 1.18 talks about that too. The word of the cross, the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to us who believe. Uh, Look at folly's fruit in verse 4. David here specifically gets to what inspired this song. Have they no knowledge? That's rhetorical, they don't. All the evildoers, those are the fools, what do they do? Well, the abominable thing they do, the vile thing they do, is they eat up my people as they eat bread. That's what elicited the song. It's the oppression of the righteous by the wicked, and he describes it as, they eat up my people as they eat bread, and they do not call upon the Lord. So, so, the generality in verse 1, it's made specific here. This is what they're doing. They're harming the righteous. They're harming those who belong to God. They eat up my people like bread. You could quote John 10 they rob, kill, and destroy the lives of others. You know, if you look at a guy like uh, Putin who goes in, I don't know what the death toll is, this is a country at peace with him on his border. And they are literally in warfare. They're murdering men, women, and children. This is vile before God. Absolutely vile. It's the folly David's talking about. The Church of Christ is in Ukraine and Russia together. You know, I've often wondered if I'm a Russian soldier and I know, and I'm a Christian and I'm facing someone from another country, who's a Christian? If I happen to know that, what do I do? You know, if I'm... Anyway... It's a challenging time, but, but Putin is demonstrating this kind of folly, this kind of violence. Not only do they intentionally harm God's people, they refuse to call on God and acknowledge Him or to honor Him in any way, in any way whatsoever. David doesn't tell us what this was. We don't have the backstory for this, so we don't know. What did that look like in his day? Don't know. Look at verses 5 and 6. The tables are turned in these verses. So he's been describing, here, here are the fools, and now this is what they're doing. They're oppressing the righteous, God's own. Well, suddenly his, he says, verse 5, there they are in great terror. So the oppressors are suddenly in terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous, the ones they're oppressing. He says God is with the righteous. He said, you would shame the plans of the poor. This would be the righteous poor. The fools, the oppressors, would shame the poor. But Yahweh, or the Lord, is his refuge. So those who are oppressing the righteous, who appear to be at the moment in the ascendancy, whether David saw this or not, I don't know, there's going to be a time in which they themselves are suddenly in great terror where the tables are suddenly turned and the ones who were doing the oppressing find themselves on the receiving end of judgment because God is with the righteous and because God is a refuge for the poor that are being oppressed. The foolish ones who've been harming God's people are suddenly in terror as God shows up to help his people. David, David is confident that ultimately the Lord will be present To save the righteous and to be the refuge of the poor who hope in Him. If you go to the New Testament and you look in Acts 9, you see the conversion story of Saul of Tarsus. And it's an important passage more than Paul's conversion because it tells us something about God's relationship with His people. So if you remember, Saul of Tarsus has been persecuting those Jewish Christians, throwing them in prison. He's really like an animal in his oppression of the early church. And he's going to Damascus, and on the way, God knocks him down and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. Now, Jesus, the man Jesus, is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus is not physically on the earth today in his person But Jesus identifies himself and the church as one and the same. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. There's an interesting passage in Daniel 7 in which the Son of Man, a key key phrase for Jesus' identification, the Son of Man goes up to the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom. Well, then when it's explained to Daniel, it says the people of God receive the kingdom that the Messiah and his people are identified as one and the same. So Jesus tells Saul, you're persecuting me. Well, that's true of Israel and the righteous in David's day as well. In Exodus 4.22, God told Pharaoh that Israel, the nation, was his firstborn son. If you read in Isaiah, these references are on your study sheet. He compared his relationship to the nation as that of a wife and a bride. You know, if someone was harming my wife, what would I do? How would I feel? That's the thought. Zechariah 2.8, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And Zechariah is a very, very important book, and we'll mention here, winding down, on what God has for his people in the future. Yet Israel's relationship to God in the future. So, David points out God is with the righteous. God is their defender. So when you attack God's people on earth, God says you're attacking me. God takes that seriously. There's there's all kinds of things, by the way, we're not covering today. Romans 8, we're like sheep to the slaughter. By the way, that's quoted from Psalms also. So in a day in which Christians may be slaughtered, and you say, is God with the righteous today? He is, but he's doing a different thing than he was in the covenant In David's day in Israel, go to verse 7, the last verse there. David closes on a prayer. So he's talking about the foolish, he describes them, he talks about what they're doing, they're oppressing the poor and the righteous. He He says, Guess what? Suddenly the tables are going to be turned on them. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then he closes with a prayer. He says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Remember, Zion is the hill that Jerusalem sits on. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, when the Lord, when Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So here's the prayer at the end. Ends on a note of prayer, an expectation of God's future deliverance coming from Jerusalem, saving all Israel. Now, because we don't know what the situation was that David is describing specifically, we don't know what that looked like for him. No idea. But I think here's the thing. You know, in Acts, David is quoted, and David is called a prophet when he wrote Psalm 16, that he wasn't speaking about himself, he was speaking prophetically about Jesus, that he wouldn't undergo corruption in his death. But I think ultimately David's prayer in verse 7 is prophetic in nature. We're not given the background to know again what that looked like in his day, but I believe it's prophetic in a future tense, God's salvation of righteous Jews. Ultimately, the answer to that prayer will be the second coming of Jesus to the earth when he arrives at the Mount of Olives to save Jerusalem and Israel from the armies of the nations. Zechariah 14 is a key biblical prophecy passage on end times and on the second coming. It's often overlooked. People go immediately to Matthew 24 or uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. But Zechariah 14 lays the groundwork for the second coming. Now, he talks about Jerusalem being surrounded by the armies of the nations. But listen, verse 5, the persecutors are going to suddenly be in terror. That's what happens when God turns the tables when the oppressor suddenly realizes we are now going to be oppressed. This is from verses 12 and 13, Zechariah 14. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem, the oppression by the fools of the righteous. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Now forget whatever. People say it's nuclear fallout, radiation. I have no idea. I don't really care. This is the point for me. Fools are rotten. That's what Psalm 14 says. Fools are internally rotten. And when they come under the judgment at Jesus' second coming, what's true internally becomes true externally in their physical persons. The rot from within is now seen without. They they are fully corrupted at the second coming of Jesus. Rotten all the way through. Verse 13, On that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them. Again, the, the persecutors now suddenly realize this isn't turning out the way we thought. The tide has turned. So that each man will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. There's an Old Testament story, I won't remember the, the citation, in which uh, the oppressors outside Jerusalem in the night, they turn against each other, killing each other. It's the same thing here. But I believe David's prayer, verse 7, will ultimately be answered at the second coming. And this is, um, this is important, and we'll see this through many psalms in the future. David ends with a short prayer for the righteous. And what you'll see is that David... It's not just that David loves God. We know that. You read Psalm 27 and he's like, Lord, I just want to hang out with you. I just, you know, God says, David has my heart. He's a man. His heart is for me. I understand that. He's also, his heart is for God's people. So he regularly prays for the nation because he knows as he was a shepherd to his father's sheep, he's a shepherd and kings were understood in those days to be, shepherds of their nation and he cares about the jews in fact if you remember when um i think it's the census in near the end of his life god says you get a spanking for this you can choose one of three and david is lamenting because he says god i leave it in your hands but thousands of people are killed under god's judgment because of what David did he's the shepherd he failed the sheep and he feels terrible his heart is for the nation and so that's what he prays for he prays for the right he's not praying for himself in this song he doesn't reference himself in the prayer at all he's praying for others that he knows God loves that's a good thing you know it's been popular on the church to say Jesus is just all right with me but I don't like the church. And I've, I've referenced this many times. It still bears repeating. You can't love Jesus and not love the church. Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5. Christ loves, present tense, the church. As God's people, like David, we should love the church. And friends, that means yehoos. That means foolish people like we sit with on Sunday morning, doesn't it? People that are like us, they still sin. They still get it wrong. There's a poem that talks about putting our fingers through the heartstrings of a friend, unintentionally hurting each other. We should be praying. We should pray for each other. We should pray for Lion Lamb Church. Many of you do, by the way, and thank you for that. We should be praying for the church generally. Guys, we should be praying for the persecuted church especially, which is what we do at the beginning of every service now Because there are real Christians, just like us, loved by God, the righteous, being oppressed by the worldly fools around them. And guys, it's not just over there, you know, it's it's Cuba, it's Colombia, South, South Mexico is one of the worst places in the world to be a Christian, as well as the Muslim countries, Central and North Africa, China, Korea, you name it. Christians are being oppressed all over the world today by the foolish among the world. And we, we should, we do, and we should, and we should continue, as David did, to pray for the righteous in our midst. Well, with that, if you would stand and uh, let's pray. If the, Remember that instead of reading a text, we're reading a prayer that comes from the song that we have studied, we've gone through, and we sort of want to give word, give prayer to the things that we've talked about. It's a great way to read God's Word and then to pray God's Word back to Him. Let's, let's uh, pray that now. Heavenly Father, save us from our own folly and give us a holy passion for your wisdom. Preserve the faith of your own who are being persecuted today. Grant the wisdom that leads to salvation to persecutors and others who, like us, have turned aside to their own ways. We wait expectantly with joy for Jesus' return